What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. No Will today. As I said in the preview pod, Will is not going to be joining us today because he is celebrating his birthday this weekend. Happy birthday to Will. Got an interview coming up with our good buddy Matt Hayes. We ran through a ton of different SEC stuff, a couple of college football-wide type things. And I, I we're, we're, So it's a little bit of a different podcast. We didn't kind of go through game by game. There are a lot of kind of sleeper games in the SEC, three SEC teams played against FCS opponents. You had Kentucky squeak one out against Chattanooga. We'll hold off on dissecting that too, too much. We'll kind of save that for the midweek pod as well. But Alabama, Florida, we got into a lot with Matt Hayes, and he's a lot higher on Florida than, than I thought he would be after that game. I think we both kind of are. But something that I wanted to hit on before we get to all of that stuff, the officiating. I'm not one of those people that sits here and says the refs are terrible, they're costing this team a game. I don't like to criticize officiating overall because I think the vast majority of the time they do exactly what they should and we make too big of a deal of this as fans. And I know that there's a bit of this pushback now and in this era in which we can slow everything down, we can see it on replay, we can take videos on our phone, like I do all the time. I did it when John Mechie got a pass interference call in his favor and it was against Kair Elam when Kair Elam didn't even look like he touched him. And for whatever reason, Alabama gets the call on that play it sets up a touchdown drive for Alabama and it changes the course of the game. The officiating was so unbelievably bad in some very key spots this weekend. And I'm going to miss some of the calls here. I'm not going to be able to get to every single one because I know every single fan base feels like their team got robbed in some way, shape, or form. If you were watching that that Auburn and Penn State game, it just felt like every team was getting screwed over at, at every turn of that game. How they lose track of the downs and then force Penn State to punt. Why they whistled that one play dead when there was still forward progress. How's a Kobe McLean gets called for targeting on that play when the game is on the line and he's trying to prevent the guy from getting into the end zone on the one yard line and he leads with a shoulder pad. I don't know what some of these officials are doing. And that's the frustrating thing right now. And you can look across the sport as a whole and say, maybe as fans, we're just a little bit too critical. And I, I like to play devil's advocate with some of these things sometimes. And I, I try and give officials the benefit of the doubt. But then you see stuff like what happens in the Mississippi State game. In case you missed it, Mississippi State was the victim of one of the most bizarre plays I've ever seen. It is a, a punt in which you have Mississippi State go to down the football and it looks like they're gonna be in really good shape. Zach Garnett's defense is gonna have Memphis essentially backed up deep in their own territory. And then Mississippi State tries to down the football, and it looks like the football's down, and then, don't you know it, a Memphis player picks up the ball and runs it in for a game-changing touchdown. And look, I, I'm, I know, Mississippi State can look back on a lot of different instances in that game, the exchange that Jaquavius Marks and Will Rogers had from the jump that leads to the scoop and score from Mike McIntyre's defense. That was, that was costly. Mississippi State's defense kind of falling apart in the third quarter, that was costly as well. But that play specifically, the two big egregious things on that play. First of all, the official that's right next to the play whistles it. Like you see his arms go up and he tosses the ball out. Like he tosses the little marker out to show where the ball is down. That doesn't necessarily mean the play is dead. But the way that he puts his arms up, you think, all right, play's dead, play's over. The ball is downed. Why can a Memphis player pick it up and then run it in for a touchdown? Can't you just do that every single time? And then so that happens. 
Not only does that happen, but then the replay shows that Memphis had two guys wearing a number four jersey on that play. And if you're Mike Leach, I don't know how you didn't blow a gasket on that. Maybe you didn't see the, the two guys were in the number four, whatever. That's a lot to process in that moment. And it almost seemed like the officials didn't really know how to process that moment. And they were so overcome by what was going on. And it was so weird that they just didn't know how to react. Why they couldn't go to the replay booth and figure that out and sort that thing through is beyond me. And seeing the SEC officiating explanation afterwards when you get this tweet in which the SEC blatantly admits that play was called incorrectly, that's terrible. That is absolutely terrible. How are we able to make that determination after a game and we're not able to make it during a game? If it happened that quickly afterwards, what was so overwhelming in that moment to where those officials couldn't recognize what was going on and that there were multiple things that should not have happened that were allowed to happen on that play? This whole thing with officiating in today's day and age, we're trying to, they say that they're trying to be more transparent. I think we're less transparent than ever. And I think that we're looking at some of these games, trying to figure out what, what, are, these, what are these guys looking at? I, I have no idea what's going on across college football with the way that we handle targeting. And I know that's well documented. And I don't want to talk about this every single week because really you could. And you could really go around to all these different games and say, that's not targeting. Maybe that is. Maybe that isn't. But the way it's being called right now, you're just asking for angry fans constantly. And this sport is too good to be thrown under the bus like that at critical moments of a game. There is no way that you should take off a leading tackler of a top 25 team in that atmosphere and, and kick him out of a game for making a hit on the goal line that you're taught at every single level of football how to make that hit. Zacoby McLean did that. And you see the devastation on his face afterwards. He gets called for targeting and then they, they, they uphold the ruling. And he just drops to his knees and dude is distraught because of what that game meant to him. And in that atmosphere, which was second to none, and a great, just a great night of entertainment. Like regardless of what it means moving forward for Penn State or for Auburn, is Penn State gonna compete for a playoff spot? Is Auburn gonna hang around the SEC West? That was just great A entertainment. And the officiating of that game was the only thing that could get in the way of how good that really was to see fans like that. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's what I'm not really accounting for is the fact that officials are having to call these games with full capacity crowds and they kind of forgot what that's like and maybe they can't hear themselves think. Okay, all right. If that's your excuse, that's kind of a weak one because uh, you know 2020 was the only real time that we we're dealing with that sort of thing, unless you're calling games on a weekly basis at, at Vandy or at FCS schools or something like that. I, I don't know, but it just seemed like over the weekend, the officiating was getting in the way of a really awesome, awesome Saturday slate of college football. And I, I know we've talked a lot about targeting before. It needs to be changed. It's still so egregious that, that guys are getting ejected instead of just getting the 15-yard penalty. We should be able to see these things. And I felt bad for, I found myself feeling bad for a lot of SEC fan bases over the weekend who had to watch their teams play and watch these just bizarre calls left and right. And like I said, I don't have a rooting interest, so maybe I don't get as riled up about this as a lot of, of y'all do. Sometimes deservedly so, sometimes it's just like, okay, you're like Bama doesn't get every single call. It doesn't happen every single time. But when you watch that game and then you see 
the pass interference on Kyrie Elam, and then you see the non-horse collar call on Henry Toto, and you think to yourself, oh, maybe Bama does just get all the breaks. Florida got breaks in that game too as well. Let's not pretend like Bama was the only one who benefited from a good call here or there, but I don't know what we do with officiating other than rethink the way that we do targeting, and that would take care of so much of these other problems because that's the biggest gripe that these fan bases have. And I don't really blame them at this point. I think that they're justified. And I think watching the way that review has been treated to where certain things just can't even be reviewed, there's just no way that that play should have held up in the Mississippi State game. And I feel bad for Mississippi State fans who they're trying to figure out what they have in year two with Mike Leach. And they're trying to see what this program is capable of. You gotta be able to make more plays on the road like that against Memphis. But at the same time, if you're gonna get a game-changing play called like that against you, in a game of inches, that, that's a killer, an absolute killer. There's too much at stake right now, not only with these coaches who have, are making more money than ever, but with players who are making more money than ever too. And lives are changed with calls in games. And it's just hard not to see that. And I think that right now, you know, like Calvin Austin, what's Calvin Austin's his, his NIL value all of a sudden, the Memphis guy who returns that, that punt for a touchdown, you know, is he going to now get opportunities as a result of that? I don't know. Maybe that's looking too far into it. But there are now higher stakes than ever. And because of the money that's on the line, we should probably treat officiating the same exact way. Have I told you about this little thing that I do with Texas Pete? I don't think I have, but I sometimes with my eggs, and I know I've said before, I put Texas Pete on my eggs. It's just a thing, whatever I like to do. I will sometimes get a get a nice little like tortilla. I'll get some leftovers that I have, maybe some mushrooms or something. I'm a big mushroom guy. And I'll just kind of douse it all in Texas Pete. You might think, oh, it's a burrito. Why wouldn't you put salsa on that or something? And I do sometimes, don't get it twisted. But I'm telling you with Texas Pete, it just kind of takes it to a new level. You just get that little bit of kick. I've hyped up how much I love the Texas Pete wing sauce is now that's a mainstay in my household. It is a new mainstay with the, the air fried chicken, all that stuff. Now is the perfect time that you need to be getting involved with Texas Pete. If you're not loaded up on Texas Pete already, consider this your warning, not only because it's football season, but because for our listeners, all you gotta do right now, you just go to texaspeet.com, you can get recipes, you can get t-shirts, you can get hats, you can get hot sauces by the box, whatever you want, it's there, texaspeet.com. And if you do that, you can get 20% off of your order with that promo code Saturday Down South. That's right, texaspeat.com. Put your order in, you put that promo code in, Saturday Down South, and you're gonna get 20% off your entire order. Trust me, I cannot say enough good things about Texas Pete sauce like you mean it. All right, let's kick it to interview with Matt Hayes. Hit on a ton of different things. Wanted to be able to kind of go big picture with some of these some of these SEC storylines on that we have three weeks. Maybe we're doing a little bit of reacting in the moment. Maybe some of this is is, is exactly the opposite and we're, we're being a little bit too conservative with some of this, but Matt always has such great perspective. So here is Matt Hayes. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Matt Hayes. Matt, I, I've got a fire take for you to start. Right now, right. The, the elite teams, they look more beatable than they've been in the last three years, at the very least. Ohio State? Absolutely. Clemson, no doubt about it. Oklahoma, uh, yeah, not even close. Even Alabama, I'm getting texts from people on Saturday saying, wow, like what's, what's wrong with Alabama? Only a two-point win? They couldn't even cover the spread? Matt, it, it feels like we're setting ourselves up for some fun this year, doesn't it? 
it almost feels like 2007 when it was literally everybody going down the rabbit hole for three months. It was, you know, the wildest ride ever. Um, you know, when two teams that all they had to do was win the, win the final game and they're in the BCS National Championship game and they both lose. Um, so it's, it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Um, I, I, I think when you look at this season, we all were kind of like, you know, we all kind of like sleepwalked into the idea of the inevitable because it's been the inevitable in college football with Alabama and Clemson uh, and with Ohio State and with Oklahoma. And, and you know, we were always saying, okay, Georgia's probably going to be in there too. So of those five, there's going to be four, and maybe Notre Dame. And Notre Dame looks terrible too. So, I mean, I, I think you look at that group of six and every single one of them looks beatable, every single one of them. And to me, when you're looking at it like that, then you start to say, wow, wait a second. Maybe we should start to look at other teams now and how other teams can deal with this, how other teams could possibly find their way in. And, and a perfect example, and I'm not saying they're going to get to the college football playoff, but anyone who thinks Arkansas can't run the ball in Alabama clearly did not watch that game yesterday with Florida because Florida did whatever they wanted. Once, once Florida realized, wait a second, let's just run the ball. Once they realized that, that game completely changed. And, and Arkansas runs the ball. You know, Georgia runs the ball. That's what those teams do. So, I mean, I, I think you look at that and you start to say, well, Alabama this and Alabama that. Listen, man, it's uh, Ole Miss can run the ball. So, so I, I think Alabama got exposed a little bit yesterday in that game in games one. Again, that's a very good Florida team in a, an unbelievable environment. So that's part of the issue. But the biggest issue is they're not that good at tackling and they're not that good in the front four. Not that good on the front four. So I hear something like that, and I always think, you know, day after a game, I kind of want to go back and watch it. Was Alabama having all these loaded fronts? Were they doing things to confuse Florida? Was that just what they were giving them? Or were they truly getting beat, beat off the ball? And I'd argue that the latter, you, you, can't, you can't say that Alabama held its own in the trenches when you look at the rushing totals and you see that Alabama hadn't been outrushed that badly since, ironically enough, 2007. And that game against right. Arkansas where, you know, it's, it's Darren McFadden, it's Felix Jones, it's, it's Peyton Hillis running against this Alabama team that uh, in year one with Saban is in a much different place. But seeing Alabama get scored 26-10 after the first quarter, that wasn't a win for Florida, and it's not going to go down as a win in the scorebook. But I think a lot of people, like you said, are looking around saying, huh, did Florida just find the blueprint to beat Alabama? Because even down 21-3, to it didn't necessarily matter. And it didn't follow the, the game script that we're so used to seeing against Alabama, which is get up 20-3, to foot on the gas, keep going. How much did that surprise you that Alabama looked vulnerable in that way? Because I, I think that they still have some things to figure out in the front seven and who they are. And when Will Anderson's 100% healthy, maybe that's a different conversation. But how much did it surprise you to see Florida kind of gash them like that in the ground game? Um, well, first off, Will Anderson played a hell of a game. He was best he guy did. on defense. So if he's, <laughs> yeah. if he's 100% healthy, I see how good he is when he's 100% healthy. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I look at that team, and I, I just think it's a bunch of little, little different things that we all have to start to embrace right now. Because, I mean, let's be honest. If if Florida had any kind of semblance of a consistent passing game, they might win that game by two touchdowns. So, if Florida can get – if they can get Anthony Richardson healthy, okay, and he can stay healthy the entire season, and they can get by LSU, Kentucky, and Georgia, which look like the three biggest hurdles for them, they're going to play Alabama in the championship game with a quarterback that can throw the ball. 
with a completely different situation at quarterback. Now, the Alabama defense clearly will have gotten better over those three months, but if you want to talk about a rematch of potentially what could happen in that game, it's uh, that would be interesting. I, I also have to, We also have to look at this, too, Connor. I mean, Miami's first game they blew out – Alabama's first game they blew out Miami. Miami is not a good team. They're, They're not, not a good team right now. I mean, Manny's in trouble. Manny Diaz is in trouble right now. So they played Miami, they played Mercer. And then they, they, they get their first test on the road in a wild environment. And, you know, they get it kind of taken to them on the line of scrimmage. And it's a line of scrimmage league. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and Arkansas has a very good, solid um, experience. They've got 20 super seniors on that team. Offensive line, they run the ball. Texas A&M has a good offensive line. They run the ball. Um, this is not going to be the first time people are going to try and bully Alabama. So it, it, I think this is going to start to, uh, you know, people. This is where you where you have to be right now if you want to be Alabama. You got to be a team that can run the ball and a team that can do consistently different things offensively. So if you can throw the ball as well, and I think with Texas A&M, I don't know if Haynes King is going to be ready for that game or not. Um, and I don't know what's going on with Calzada. We have no idea what's going on with that passing offense because they haven't played anybody. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting. How about Ole Miss, Connor? What's that Ole Miss offense going to do to Alabama? Almost that can really throw the ball. You got good guys on the outside. Um, you look at Matt, Matt Carl is a, is a really, really talented player that I think a lot of people are overlooking. Um, and defensively, they're getting better. They're not, you know, they're not world beaters, but they're certainly better than they were last year. And they can run the ball. They can run the ball. They're not going to line up and smash mouth it. But if you've got that ability to throw the ball and spread the field, they'll run it too. Okay, let me play devil's advocate here because last year, right around this time of the season, we see Ole Miss do what it did to Alabama. And it looks like Alabama had no idea how to get a stop. And suddenly we're saying, wow, Alabama is super vulnerable on the back end. They can get exposed there. And if you have a quarterback who can do, like you said, a variety of things, you can theoretically beat Alabama. That's the blueprint. And then Alabama still ends up having one of the most dominant seasons in the history of college football. So are we perhaps, and and I'm saying this because I I think copying that formula is going to be different moving forward because when this happens early in the year and Alabama can make those adjustments, perhaps we're we're just wasting our own own breath by saying this, but running the ball consistently against Alabama is still such a foreign concept. And Mullen, I'm going to credit him because I think to pivot the way that he did against Alabama... I'm not sure that I've seen anyone else within a one-year stretch have such a total 180 from an offensive game plan against Nick Saban and see it work. In consecutive years, that's a totally different offense. And it gave everything that Alabama could handle. Again, like nobody has been able to stay on the field with Alabama since the start of 2020, maybe with the exception of that old Miss game. And I know Georgia was leading the second half, but still, what did Saturday say about Mullen because I was really impressed that from a game planning standpoint he's got a quarterback who's clearly rattled and he stuck with the run and even though it looks like Alabama knew what was coming it still couldn't do anything with it so I we have to give Mullen his praise don't we yeah I think so so a couple thoughts um I think that's really the only thing Florida could do with the way Emory Jones was throwing the ball they had to run the ball and I think he was kind of forced into that and, and not that that's a bad thing but that's what they did. And he had a great plan. There's no doubt about it. It took him like a quarter and a half to figure out what they had to do. And then they did it. Um, so, yeah, he, I mean, he's a terrific game day coach. There's no doubt about it. And a play caller, he, he just, he gets it. And he's one of those guys that sees things, sees plays in advance before they even happen. Um, so I, I agree with you there. And I also think a lot of this, you know, maybe even a majority of it is that they played a really good team on the road in a tough environment. 
But I want to circle back to something you said about last year's team when they gave up 48 to Ole Miss and everybody's saying, oh, that defense is terrible. And then they go out and they, and they, you know, they, they just bludgeon people. But these are the offenses they faced it after that, after that Ole Miss game, okay? Georgia, was Georgia any good with Steady Bennett back there? Come on. <laughs> Tennessee, Mississippi State, Kentucky, Auburn, LSU, Arkansas. That's before they played Florida. Those are not good offenses, okay? They played Florida, and they gave up 46 points after that. Now, Notre Dame also, not that good of an offense. They gave up 14. They, they, they played well defensively in the playoff. There's no doubt about that um, against Notre Dame and against Ohio State. But I, I think when you look at that team last year, a lot of their problems on defense during the season were kind of, kind of like shadowed because of who they played. Um, and again, you can also say, well, look at that Florida offense. They're one of the greatest, greatest Florida offenses ever. And you're right. There's no doubt about that. But I, I just think that you look at this Alabama defense, and it's strange the way they played that game too, Connor. For some reason, they were playing two safeties high the entire game. And I have no idea why. Like, were they, were they threatening? Were they worried about Emory Jones throwing the ball over the top? Florida didn't throw. This is what's, what was crazy to me. Florida did not throw one deep throw to Copeland. Not one. He, yeah. I don't even think they threw a pass to him all game, the entire game, because they were playing too high. And, and Dan Moore was like, well, if you're going to play too high, I'm just going to run the ball. And they just kept running the ball, and they kept playing too high. It was so strange to me. Um, so I, I, I think that's part of it as well. You'll see some adjustments as far as what they do schematically. I, I just think you look at that team, and they're not what they were on the, on the front four. There's no doubt about it. Or in their 3-4 their system in the, in the front five is what it is, those two outside backers they've got. They're just not what they were in the past. Anderson's a terrific player. But other than that, I mean, you can push those guys around. I can't believe I actually said it, but you can push those guys around. Now, you can also make the argument, well, Florida's deep offensive line is very good. They're experienced. And, you know, maybe it's just Florida's offensive line is really good. Well, Florida's offensive line was not a run-blocking line last year. They were not that good at all. Not at all, yeah. And, you know, they've, and they've, and they've, they've said they're better. And we've heard all offseason how they're going to be better this year. Um, so, Clearly, they're doing something right. So I, it's, it's, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. But if you're looking at that, clearly you're looking at that Alabama team and saying, okay, there's some flaws there. If you had actually just rolled out a cover three in that game with a single high safety, you probably, if, you, if you're Pete Colding, you probably would have been all right. But there's almost this pushback on the cover three and having a single high safety because if you get burned on it, it's why in the world are you playing cover three? You're an idiot for doing that. And the defensive coordinator just gets blasted, even though you're exactly right. In a game like that where, look, Emory Jones is not stretching the field. When he does, he makes overthrows. He makes bad reads. Dan Mullen doesn't trust him to do that, and nor should he really at this point, considering that was the first game all year that he didn't have multiple interceptions. And he also didn't have an Anthony Richardson to, to turn to in this game. And seeing the way that this played out was strange because before the game, you see him doing his backflips once again. Don't know why a guy with a hamstring injury is doing that. A little bit of a head scratcher, but whatever, that's his personality, that's what he's going to do. And when you find out that he wasn't going to play in that game unless Emery gets hurt, you kind of you kind of dance around this. I don't know if you've said this. I don't, I don't think you've said this directly, if I'm not mistaken here. But if Anthony Richardson is out there, even in a part-time capacity, do you think Florida wins that game? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I wrote last week at Saturday Down South. He's a once-in-a-generation once type player. He absolutely is. He will win a national championship there at Florida. It's just a matter of when. Um, and and I, didn't, I didn't know if they had the team this year to do it, 
But I'll tell you what, if he's healthy and he plays throughout the season and they get back to that championship game against Alabama, they will be playing in that game to get in the playoffs. And then once he gets in the playoffs, you, you've got a guy going up against uh, teams from other conferences that have no idea how to deal with him. Are you – so you say that, that, that Florida, you believe, can have that path to the playoff. But then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, that matchup in Jacksonville in your neck of the woods is going to be really difficult for Florida because of what Georgia does well. And Florida right now might have been able to push Alabama around up front. That Georgia front is not sitting there getting getting two to one outrushed. That's just not happening with Jordan Davis and Devontae Wyatt and all those guys that they have in the front seven. So I kind of look at that matchup a little bit too far in advance. And, you know, the injuries can happen and who knows how that's going to play out. But I think to myself, right. well, Georgia's still, Georgia's still the favorite, in my opinion, in the East because of what Florida has struggled to do in the passing game. And unless Anthony Richardson is able to, to return and we see this consistently used in the passing game where Florida feels like it has a passing game that it can rely on, I can't sit here today and say that, that Florida is a better team than Georgia. I can tell you this. Alabama had 91 yards and 28 carries against Florida. 91 yards. So if Florida can slow down the Georgia run game, then then it's they're teeing off then because they've got the end. They've got the guys on the outside with Carter, uh, with Bogle, with Moon, those guys that can get the quarterback. So that, to me, kind of changes things as well. That, that game's going to be phenomenal. That game's – if everything plays out like we all think it could and it's unbeaten Georgia against one loss Florida, that might be the best game of the, of the season in the SEC. That's going to be a just an absolute war. But, I mean, I, I look at what Florida's done on, on the lines of scrimmage, and they stopped Alabama from running, and they ran the ball on Alabama. And that's, I mean, to me, that's like one of those red beacons, you know, during a rainy night, it's just beep, 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 you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> wait a second, that's a team that is owning the line of scrimmage in the, in the best league in, the, in, the, in college football. And that's like, you know, you, you start to say, wait a second, if they had any kind of ability to, to throw the ball, because, you know, I, I asked earlier when we were talking, you know, I don't know why they were playing, you know, too high. Well, I know why they're playing too high, because they don't like their corners. They don't like their corners in man because if they play, if they could play man, then you can stop the run a little better. So, so they're not, they can't do that. They also weren't playing man under because they were worried about Emory Jones running the ball. Yeah, so they're, they're trying to keep him away from running the ball. And it's, I mean, you got to, if you're at a point where you have a team that can run the ball and a quarterback that can run the ball and they can throw it like they can with Richardson, you've got so many different things to worry about. You got to, you know, you got to pick your poison. It's not like last year, Alabama with the, the passing game. There's so many different guys that can beat you. You can't double everybody. You just got to hope the one you double doesn't get the ball. This is the part of the program where I whisper very, very softly so as to not upset Florida fans by saying this, but lost in the <laughs> shuffle of Florida going down 21 to three in that game was the fact that Todd Grantham and his defense did not allow a chunk play. Alabama did not have a play of more than 30 yards for the first time since 2018 against that loaded Mississippi State defense. That stat courtesy, I believe it was Brad Edwards. And that kind of shows you why this game felt so weird for Alabama. And Florida's defense, if it can do what it did up front, which I thought Bryce Young handled it a lot, a lot better than he could have in those moments. If you think back to some of the things that Bo Nix did when he visited the Swamp, there was no guarantee that Bryce Young was going to be in that role looking as good as he did. And we kind of forget, Mac Jones has this legacy that at Alabama that is, 
going to be really hard to reach for any future quarterback. And that, that even includes Bryce Young. But what Mac Jones really never had to do was step into that raucous road atmosphere and come up with a big time win with those expectations. Because when he when he went into the Iron Bowl in a full capacity road crowd against a real top 25 team on the road, Mac Jones threw two pick sixes in that. And there were mistakes to be made for Bryce Young. There was the one that slipped out of the hands of Bretton Cox when he drifts back in coverage. And there were pre-snap miscommunication issues where you're just like, ah, you know, that's that's where you kind of wish you had like a fourth-year guy in that spot. But all things considered, he handled it well. Are you of the belief that Bryce Young still has that that Heisman upside? Or did Florida and what Todd Grantham did to kind of prevent those chunk plays maybe say, hey, this, this offense can be contained. You just got to figure out the right ways to do it. Uh, no, I'm, I think Bryce Young's terrific. Absolutely terrific. I, I, I think the way he sees the field, the way he moves in the pocket, he's a guy that if, if you watch his high school tape, he's like Johnny Manziel. He's a dude that can run and, like, run fast and, and make you miss. And he's he's at the point now where Bill O'Brien has coached him into, look, you, you, you know, the greater good is throwing the ball, is finding time and throwing the ball because, and this is the key here, because not only because he moves in the pocket, but when he breaks contained from the pocket, his accuracy doesn't decrease. He still throws the ball with high, high accuracy. So I, I watch him play, and I'm thinking, wow, this dude is only going to get better. It was his first game on the road in a crazy environment. Uh, I think he played really, really well. He, he, got, he got a little help from the Florida defense that couldn't tackle in space on three yeah. or four different plays that really, really led to points. And, and again, if you're if you're Todd Grant from that Florida defense, and you see, you know, you you gave a lot of points. You know, you offense always talks about oh, we left a lot of points on the board. Florida gave a lot of points in that game with those with just some unbelievably bad tackling in space. Um, but you know, that's also the pressure of the Alabama athletes, of the Alabama players, of Bryce Young making plays and forcing Florida to tackle in the space like that. So yeah, I, I mean, I if anything, I came away even more impressed. By Bryce Young in that game, uh, in that game, in that environment, uh, the way he played, the way he played in a game where they had to have big plays in that position, he did play after play. Agreed, and I was hoping that you were going to say that because I definitely didn't look at that and think, "Wow, Bryce Young, maybe we got a little too excited." Uh, definitely room for improvement, but. I still come away thinking that he's one of the most electrifying players in the sport already, and I usually do not say that after guys who have started three games, but but he is there. All right, Alabama, Georgia, neutral site tomorrow. Who do you got? Oh, um, you know, I, I'm I, I got to be honest with you. I I like J T. Daniels. I th- I think he's got a lot of talent, a lot of ability. Um, but but we're we're. I think we have to start looking at things differently now, Connor. I really do. I mean, like, what's Clemson right now? We saw Clemson yesterday against Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech. They're in the last minute of a game trying to keep Georgia Tech from tying the game. So I'm starting to think, okay, you know, I want to see JT Daniels in a game where he's playing a, a legitimate elite team that not only is very good on defense, that can stress his defense, score points on his defense, to where every snap when they're playing offense means something. When, when you know when, when you're playing Clemson and Clemson can't move the ball on your on your defense, you've got a little security blanket of sorts. If Clemson's going up and down the field, you can't make mistakes on offense. So I want to see him in a game where he cannot make mistakes on offense. And he's got to make good plays. Um, and, and and a game like that. So you're telling me right now, Alabama, Georgia, neutral. Oh man, um, I think I'd have to take Alabama. 
I think I have to take Alabama. I'm just not I'm not sold yet on Georgia on the outside yet. And you know, and, and, and there's a chance that Pickens gets back if Pickens comes back, he's gonna I can't imagine that he would jeopardize his NFL future by trying to get back this year. So they just they just right now the only guy on the outside that really scares anyone, and if you think about it, you know, you you've got those tight ends, you got the freshman tight end. Um, I just Burton, Brock I guess, Bowers, is a guy yeah. that can be that can be deep a little bit. Um, but there's just no one on the outside that kind of scares you. Georgia's passing game is based on the ability of them being able to run the ball and throw off play action. And and if they can't run the ball, then what? So yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know. That's a tough that's a tough spot because Alabama's. I think Alabama's rush defense will get better. I do. But is it better enough to stop George from running the ball? I don't know. That's tough, man. That, I think that game's a lot like the Alabama-Florida game. It's a two- or three-point game. Hmm. And I think George's pass offense is going to get better. And I think you look back on that with Clemson and the way that it, that it has played out so far where Clemson is just a shell of its former self right now. And they're, they're going to be lucky to get to the postseason with only one loss. But I kind of look back on that matchup, and then you see – JT Daniels had the oblique injury coming in. Apparently, he was dealing with it. It, it, it wasn't necessarily a spot that Todd Allegedly. Monk wanted to put him in. Allegedly, right, right. right. Allegedly, take, take Todd. At this point, with the Georgia quarterback, I don't believe anything. It's like the amount on the field, you know. Okay, so there there is that point, and and maybe even if he's 100 percent healthy, though, I I understand from Todd Munkin if your if your entire mindset is get the get get the ball out of his hands quickly. We don't want him taking these big these big hits against this Clemson front. So from that standpoint, I get it. I'll give him a little bit of a pass. I think they're figuring some things out in the passing game. But then I kind of also look on the other side, and if there's something that's slowing me down from the Georgia hype, every single team who has won the college football playoff national championship has had a receiver that has eventually been drafted in the first two rounds. Does Georgia have that guy? Is George Pickens going to be that guy if he comes back? Could he help out his draft stock by coming back and showing, look, I put the team first. I was willing to do this. I didn't have enough good film yet, and I helped this team out in this explosive offense. I wouldn't rule that out at all. Do they have those guys? Is Burton going to develop into that guy? Is Kyrus Jackson ever going to be healthy? I don't know. We, we still have a lot that we have yet to see for Georgia, but that's also kind of what intrigues me at the same time. And then we watch what happens this past Saturday. And... This game, you know, Georgia's a 30-point favorite against South Carolina, and you feel terrible for Luke Doty in this one because the dude wasn't, he was the emergency guy, and Zeb Nolan gets his hand stepped down by Jalen, gets his finger stepped down by Jalen Carter, Luke Doty's got to come in, feed him to the Wolves, essentially, zero time to throw, but Kirby <laughs> does another thing that just makes you go, Kirby, what, what are you doing? He starts JT Daniels, who looks great, but then he puts in Stetson Bennett. I said after Georgia's spring game, this is impossible for Kirby to mess up. There's no way oh, yeah? he can mess oh, yeah? up this quarterback situation. <laughs> and and Kirby's just trying to make me look dumb at this point. Is Kirby going to find a way to mess this up? Uh, I, I don't. I, I mean, I don't think so. I, I think Kirby realizes what he has and who the quarterback is. Um, I don't know why he put him in there. I have no idea. So maybe, weird. JT, something, maybe JT felt a little twinge in his oblique or something. I, I, I don't know. To me, look, I picked Georgia to win it all. So, so uh, um, for me to look like smart instead of looking like an idiot, I hope they do win it all. But um, <laughs> you just look at you you look at what they have, and I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, Burton's got has to develop into an elite receiver. He has to, and I'm not sure he can. You know, so you're looking at ba Bowers as your main target at this point. I mean, that's to me, that's just strange. It's strange to me that Kirby recruits 
among the top of anyone in college football other than other than Nick, and they don't have receivers. And I know they've got injuries. I understand that. I totally get that. But you've got to develop guys. You've got to keep guys in your roster. Uh, Demetrius Robinson is a great example. They had to keep him. And I know, you know, you, 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 you could say whatever you want about, well, the kid wanted to play. He hadn't played for four years. He wanted to go out and play. But you got to find a way to say, look, you know, you're going to play here X, Y, and Z. They didn't. They, could they use him now? I mean, they could clearly use him right now. So, so um, I, I just, I think the passing game for them, and I know JT threw for 300 yesterday, but again, that's against South Carolina. It's when you start, they start going against defenses that can cover in the secondary and that can get a little pressure. I think then you're going to see that deep, that passing game start to change a little bit, and they're going to, you know, they're going to have to be able to run the ball to be successful throwing it. They, they just can't be in a situation where, okay, we can't run the ball, screw it, we'll just throw it. You know, like Florida was last year or like Alabama was last year. Just throwing it. Yeah, that's right. We're throwing it. Come stop us. And oh, I don't sure, think they yeah. can be that offense. I don't think they can be that offense. They need to be able to run the ball. Let's talk about the, the team that Demetrius Robertson did go to, Auburn. They lose that game to Penn State. And, look, I, I was sitting here ready to tell you if you fell for the Bo Nix trap, Shame on you. It's the same old Bo Nix. It didn't matter which coordinator they brought in. He's still going to be the same frustrating guy. And I actually came away from that game thinking Bo Nix looks more comfortable. And even though the stats, if you just look at the box score, you would say he was ineffective. And it's, a, it's another loss to a, to a really good Penn State team on the road, a team that at least has a really good defense. And I'm kind of rethinking two preseason takes that I had. And one was that Auburn was going to be 5-7 and seven in year one of the Brian Harson era. And the other was that Bo Nix was going to lose his job by midseason. Because if you're going to lose your job, you're going to look really bad on that type of stage. And I, I really did not think he looked as bad as he would have in years past. And did not look as lost. Are you now more of an Auburn believer that they can at least kind of hang around and be one of these like eight and four type of teams in the West that isn't necessarily a doormat? All right, so I'm, I'm going to look at this kind of from a different point of view, okay? Again, I know it's a tough environment, a crazy wide environment in Penn State. Penn State defense is a good defense. Um, I don't know if I call them elite, but they're a good defense. Um, and the other guy, very similar situation, the other quarterback, Sean Clifford, same type of guy, had a great year in 2019, fell off the earth in 2020. Now with Mike Yurchis, is really playing well for Penn State again. Um, I think what Brian Harzen has done for Bo Nix, and it's Brian Harzen, and I, I know Bobo's the OC, and I get that, and Bobo's work too, but Brian Harzen has been an offense slash QB guy his entire coaching career. Um, I think what he's done for Bo Nix and what Bobo's done for Bo Nix has been phenomenal, okay? He's he's playing – he played reckless his first two years, and I don't think he's playing reckless right now. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Connor, let's look at what he was yesterday. I think he played well. He still barely completed 50% of his passes. He still only threw for 185 yards. He's still not finding guys intermediate and deep and throwing accurately intermediate and deep. I have no idea what that fourth down fade call was. That's number one. Oh, Even gosh. the call, the call that was, was terrible. The throw was uh, the worst throw I've ever seen. You got to give your guy a chance to catch the ball, and he wasn't even close. So, I I just think that until they become a team that can throw it intermediate and throw it deep with accuracy, they're going to struggle a little bit when you start playing big teams or, or, or better teams. 
Um, I like what he's done with him. I think he's, he's played well at home, but again, that, that gets two, you know, two gimme putts to start the season. And now, you know, you go into a tough environment and this is what happens. And I'm not saying that majority of the quarterbacks in college football wouldn't have that happen to them when they go in that environment. But, but, you know, we have this idea of how Bo Nix has improved and he's a different quarterback now. And I think he is. I just don't think he's a different guy where you're saying, wow, that dude's going to win a big game for you on the road. I don't, I don't think he's there yet. I just don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he's, he's going to be quite at that level. And, and there are a lot of things that, that suggest he's, he's going to be under a microscope for the next few weeks with the matchups that he has coming up. Of course, when you go to LSU, we expect to see this vintage LSU defense. But if this LSU defense is still struggling to cover so much and if they can't really get after you in defending the run, then that kind of creates a different a different scenario. And who knows what Tank Bigsby is going to do to that defense. What I think this is all shaping up for these first three weeks is that the West is going to be nuts. And it's sort of a microcosm maybe of, of college football as a whole this year. But there are just so many different ways that this thing can go. I'm pumped for Arkansas A&M to play next week. I thought it was kind of a shame that college game day wasn't going to be yeah. there. I know, right? Like a, a matchup in Can't which wait. one team has dominated for a decade, and it seems really fun. And at the same time, I'm worried about both of those quarterbacks because Zach Calzada, KJ Jefferson, they could both be in for really long days against the likes of Barry Odom and Mike Elko, and then Mississippi State and LSU. They play next week. MSU got screwed at Memphis on that wild punt return play, which is some of the worst officiating you'll ever see. LSU still has its issues, but maybe it found its its ground game with Corey Kiner. And then, oh, by the way, like you said before, Ole Miss is just kind of casually hitting 60 points against the Tulane team that gave Oklahoma everything it could handle a few weeks ago. So, Matt, when 2021 comes to an end, who is the West's number two team? Uh, Alabama. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> honestly it's. Uh, I, I mean, at this point, nothing's going to shock me because I, I. I think, again, we might look. We overreacted with Alabama, and Miami, week one. Absolutely, we did. Fair. We overreacted with Georgia, Clemson, week one. Absolutely, we did. Maybe we're overreacting with Alabama, and Florida, right now. Maybe Florida's really good, and Alabama's really good, and Alabama just rolls until they get until they play whoever they play in the SEC championship game. Um, I would say it's a little uh, – uh, it's more of Alabama's got some work to do defensively. I think offensively, they'll – you know, they only rushed for 91 yards in that game against Florida. I think it was 91, in the 90s, low 90s. Um, but I think that, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a point in that game where you said, wow, they can't run the ball. They, they still got that first down when they needed it. With the clock running down, they had to get a first down. Three straight runs, and they got the first down. So, you know, we could say Florida stopped the run, but guess what? When it mattered most – when Florida had to get a stop to get the ball back to try and win the game, they didn't get a stop. So I, I, I think Alabama's still running the ball well, so I wouldn't be worried about that. I think the bigger issue is defensively. And is, is it because they were just out-schemed and out-coached by Dan Mullen, that it was Dan Mullen versus Pete Golding, and that's an absolute colossal mis- mismatch? Could be that, sure. Um, it also could just be that they're two really, really good teams in a really good game in a crazy environment and chalk it up to that, and then see what happens next week. I mean, we look, all of us, we are the king of overreaction. We all are, um, because it's easy that way. It's easier to say, oh, yeah, look at that, it's terrible, and then the next week you say, yeah, I might have been wrong. And nobody cares, right? So, I don't know, part, part of me also thinks that, honestly, Connor, that it's just two really good teams that played a great game, and it, and it should be left at that. And then the other part of me thinks, 
boy, uh, you know, and Alabama front seven is not what it used to be, and they're playing cover too high the entire game for a reason. They don't trust their corners. Let's talk a little bit honestly, of Ole Miss. Honestly, Connor, against honestly against the quarterbacks, it's not that good of a throw, and you're not trusting your corners against you know for that. It's just strange, very strange. And I and I know the response to that could be, well, if you play man, then you're opening up everything for Emory Jones to beat you with his leg. And I understand that too, but you know, if that's the you know if that's the the the, the poison you chose, and that's the poison you chose. What what I what I heard from all of that is uh, this this thing could there there are no. There are no, there's no limit to the possibilities of, of the West and what can unfold here. Conference play is going to be really telling. I mean, we, we think we have some of these things figured out just because some of these teams have played in some of these headliner type of games. But at the same time, the, the SEC West is always going to tell you who you really are. And what I can't wait to figure out, we're going to have to wait a little bit because Ole Miss is on a bye this weekend. But who really is this Ole Miss team and what is their ceiling? Because... I said before coming into this week that I thought Matt Corral was better than Spencer Rattler. It blows me away that people are still as high on Spencer Rattler as they are. I think Matt Corral has a real legitimate case to be considered the best quarterback in college football right now. And that's not just because he put up 60 against Tulane, but because of the things that he does well with his legs and with his arm. I don't know how long that the Lane Kiffin-Jeff Levy dynamic is there at Ole Miss, but I do know that it's fun. And I'm not one of those people that thinks Lane is leaving after year two or something like that. I remember talking to somebody last year who's saying, don't sleep on Lane going to Auburn and, and potentially being Gus Malzahn's replacement. I'm like, really? Like That's, that's a, a conversation we're having. And then, of course, everybody wants to do the thing where they, 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 they put Lane out at USC and that's, that's his happily ever after, whatever. And then Levy, that part of it, it fascinates me. This is his year. He's going to keep Matt Corral in the Heisman race, and I think that he's going to put up a ton of points in that offense, regardless of kind of what their defense turns into. Are you hearing any buzz about Jeff Lebby in terms of the coaching world and the type of jobs that he could be that he could be really offered at season's end if things continue to go this way? Yeah, I think he would have got the UCF job if Gus didn't want it. If Gus thought, you know, I'm staying out for a year, I think I think Jeff would be the UCF UCF coach right now. Um, I, I will say this about Lane, and I have no idea what's going to happen at LSU, okay? None of us do. Um, and I really like Ed Orgeron. He's, I, I just think he's a guy that, you know, it, it's a tough situation, that job, man. And I, I think you can't ignore that, you know, he's the guy who went out and pursued Joe Burrow. Everybody says, oh, Joe Burrow, you got Joe Burrow, got lucky. He's just like Gene Chizik, which is just also a slap in the face of Gene Chizik, who I think is a, a really good football Preach. coach. But, but, um, He's the guy who went out and identified Joe Burrow. He's the guy who said, okay, this dude is the guy that I think I want. This is the guy that I think can help our offense. He's the guy that identified Joe Brady. He's the guy that said, I want this guy running my offense. So, I, you know, that, those are head coach decisions. Those are big chair decisions. Um, and, and I think he doesn't get anywhere near enough credit for that. He's also the guy who's recruiting a ton of athletes to that place. Now, you can say, okay, well, what about his decisions with, with Bo Pliny? Bad decisions. What about the decision with Matt Canada? Bad decision. There's no doubt about it. He'd own up to it, okay? But but I, I think at this point, you know, you you got to let this thing play out there. Now, if something happens and they go four and eight, are they going to be screaming about Ed? And could they fire him? Absolutely. I mean, I, look, it's college football at LSU. Absolutely, they can fire him. Now, I'm getting this all the way with this story here, Connor, to get to the point of Lane Kiffin. 
Would Lane leave Ole Miss for LSU? I mean, are you kidding me? In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. And then that's where Jeff Levy will just stay there and be the Ole Miss coach. So I, I, that's that, to me, wouldn't be shocking in the least. I, and it's not just because Lane wants to jump to another job or Lane's a guy with a history of jumping jobs. Look, I don't care who you are. You're the Ole Miss coach. And this is no offense to Ole Miss because I love the people at Ole Miss. I love the atmosphere. I love what they're all about. That's one of my favorite places. But if you're the coach at Ole Miss and the LSU job opens up and LSU offers you the job, you're taking the job. It's just that simple. You've got a better chance to recruit the type of athletes you can recruit to win a national championship than you do to, to recruit them at Ole Miss. And it's, you know, it's, I'm not, it's nothing bad about Ole Miss. I'm not saying anything bad about them. It's kind of the reality of the sport. There are blue bloods in the sport, period. If that were to happen, the reaction from Ole Miss fans would be nuts oh. to see well, that I mean, after and, and, two and, years. And they'd be, by all rights, be, they, should, they should be crazy by, by all rights. And, and it's, it would be very, very hurtful for them. There's no doubt about it. They'd be, you know, a jilted lover. There's, I mean, honestly, Connor, it would. And it's, but you can't blame – how could you blame Kiffin for taking that job? You can't. You can't blame anyone. If it was, if it was Joe Smith coaching Ole Miss, and all of a sudden, the LSU job opens up. Can you blame Joe Smith for taking the LSU job? No. Gus getting the UCF job over Jeff Levy is going to be, it could be one of those things that five years from now we look back and we say, UCF might have taken a wrong turn on that. And I'm, not, I'm trying not to be a prisoner of the moment because I realize UCF just lost in devastating fashion to, ironically enough, Louisville, who we saw Jeff Levy lead that offense in week one with Ole Miss against Louisville, and they had no chance whatsoever of stopping them. And then the way that it ends for UCF in that game where they lose Dylan Gabriel... I, I'm I'm kind of planting my flag on on whatever uh, on the, on the Jeff Levy is is for real. Jeff Levy is going to be an elite offensive mind, and we're going to be talking about him in a different sort of way. But then, what does Kiffin's offense now look like away from Jeff Levy is a fascinating question as well. With some of the principles that he's brought in, Kiffin obviously an incredible offensive mind, but some of the Baylor things that he does that Levy is able to do and execute to me is just makes Ole Miss different, and recruiting that is different. So I, I'm I'm fascinated to see the way that this this kind of plays out, and if that that LSU temptation exists for Lane Kiffin at season's end, what what would that look like? Um, I think that's something we'll be talking about a lot moving forward. Matt, um, I know you got to go in a little bit here. You got a busy busy writing day. I always got to ask what's in the holster for for first and ten. That's going to be out on Monday morning. Um, why don't you tell the listeners kind of what you what you've got in the works for that? I mean, honestly, Connor, it's really, you know, what we thought isn't what's real and, and how it's going to impact what happens over the, over the course of the season. I mean, it's going to be a crazy keep your hands and feet in the car kind of ride, man, because I, I think, I mean, you, you got Ole Miss now with two weeks to prepare for Alabama, two weeks to watch that Florida tape and prepare for them. And Alabama better get better on, on defense quickly. They better, they better figure out what they're doing as far as tackling, as far as just the basic fundamentals of lining up right, because – they got blown off the ball numerous times against Florida. And, again, this might be a situation where Florida's just a really good team, but that Ole Miss offense can score points now. And, and I know the games in Tuscaloosa, they're going to score points. They're absolutely going to score points. It, it could very easily be another one of those, what was it, 63-48 last year or something like that. It could easily be a game in the 40s. Um, but, but this is – it's going to be fun to watch – to watch and see what Ole Miss has in store for Alabama after Kiffin and Levy have two weeks to prepare for them. It's going to be fun. I, I mean, I can't wait to watch Arkansas. Two straight weeks now with Arkansas. you got Texas A&M, you got Georgia. And you're going to really see what Arkansas is 
um, what what this this physical team with 20, 20, Connor, 20 super seniors, guys, it's their sixth year now playing college football. Um, and, and to me, that's that's an advantage, man. That's an advantage on the field. It's an advantage in the locker room. It's an advantage of not getting too high or not getting too low. It's an advantage of these guys have had crap most of their careers, and all they want to do now is win. Um, Arkansas, to me, is a really intriguing team right now. So uh, that's going to be fun. Um, Texas A&M, how do they adjust with the quarterback over the next four, five, six weeks? We have no idea when Haynes – Haynes King has a broken ankle, okay? A fracture means it's broken. That's what a fracture is. A fracture is a break. So, you know, anyone who says Haynes King is going to come back in mid-October is crazy. It's not going to happen. So it's going to be interesting to see how Texas A&M moves forward. And, and honestly, what happens with Florida? What, what do you do with Anthony Richardson? Do you hold him out another game to make sure he's completely healthy? This is the hamstring that happened um, in spring. He hurt initially in, mm-hmm. in the spring. So do you hold him out another game? Do you hold him out two games? Do you just make sure he's completely 100% healthy? Because if you have a guy like that, if you can get through the next couple of weeks and get wins and you get him completely healthy, man, a guy like that can change everything, everything. So and and I honestly think that's why Dan held him out last uh, yesterday, because it's there's way too much to lose if you play him and he enters it and he tears it and he's out for the season. But if you can if you can find a way to win games without him until he's completely healthy, man, you've got a chance for a big big season down the road. I feel like we just got all first and ten. That was excellent. Still read Matt's column. It is a must, must read every Monday morning. I, I look forward to that. Always great stuff in there. I want to shout out your other thing that you got going with us. Saturday Lives Forever. I, I've plugged it many a time on this show. The Peyton Manning and Reggie Bush episodes are both live right now. I've got. I know you've got a few in the holster here. You paint the scene so well in these, and and the narrative based. I, I truly love, and it, it's fun to listen to because you always think back to. Where you were when these certain things happen, whether it's the Peyton Manning press conference or the Reggie Bush, you know, the Bush push or whatever, like the Bush right. one for me, you lay that out. And, and I can think back to being in my buddy's basement. His family was good friends with Tommy Zivikowski, who was the Notre Dame safety, who boxed and then played a big role on that Bush, the Bush push play that went against Notre Dame. And at the time, we're all pulling for the Irish because Zivikowski, he went to our high school. And I, I just remember thinking of all the ways to get beat by Reggie Bush, him pushing his quarterback into the end zone wasn't how right. I thought it would play out. And I was so glad that you hit on exactly that point in the intro. Uh, tell the people what you've got coming up with uh, with Saturday Lives Forever. Just a, it's, it's a really fun project. Um, the brainchild of, a, of, of a Kevin Duffy, who, who runs uh, Saturday Football, Saturday on South, Saturday Tradition, uh, the CEO of the company, the guy that is the brains. Um, we talked about it. We came up with this idea. And um, just a really fun way to do a podcast. Everybody has podcasts now. We decided, you know, we've got to do something different, um, something unique uh, away from what, you know, is typically put out there. And and Kevin had this great idea about a, a video slash audio type podcast. And, you know, it's a narrative where it's it's like you're reading a, you know, a profile or a takeout story in a, online or in a newspaper or a magazine, but it's, it's, a, it's a spoken narrative. Um, and that leads into an interview. And, and it's, I think it's just it's a different way. We're trying to be different in how we place things, and I think we stumbled onto something really, really cool that has a nice a, a nice uh, complement for each other, both the audio and, and the video. Um, and it's just, you know, you've got stories out there, and I've said this all along, Connor. You know, we all are very much prison of the moment, and 
something happens and we wrapped immediately. And, and I don't think we ever truly sit down and celebrate things like we should, because as a society, it's all so quick now. Um, yep. And this gives us a chance to celebrate just some of the great things that we've seen in college football you know, in the past. And it's, it's Peyton Manning in that four year run at, at Tennessee. People still don't understand this. I mean, he gave up millions of dollars to stay at Tennessee. And when I mean millions, I mean, there was no rookie scale back then. He could have made whatever he wanted had he come out. Whatever he wanted. He was the, you know, you want to talk about Trevor Lawrence with this, this guy, that the, the best quarterback since whoever. Peyton Manning was the best quarterback since John Elway. He could have got whatever he wanted, and he turned down that money to play one more year at Tennessee. College football meant that much to him. The college experience meant that much to him. Those are the stories that we're trying to celebrate, that we're trying to, you know, just look back and say, wow, do you realize what we had here and, and how important it was to the fabric of the game? Um, and the next couple of episodes also uh, very similar. So, I mean, we're really excited about it. It's awesome stuff. It really, really is. And if you have not checked it out yet, you should definitely do that. Last, last thing before I let you go. I got to remind you, I said a few months ago that Cincinnati was going to beat Indiana and Notre Dame to set themselves up for the playoff. They got the first half of that out of the way. Got to wait till October for the Cincinnati-Notre Dame game. Knowing Notre Dame, they're probably going to like lose to Wisconsin at Soldier Field or something next week. But I, I think we might need a little bit of a wager on this. Could we do like a Cincinnati-specific first and 10 after they win that game or about the group of five path to the playoff? <laughs> or maybe maybe we have a little bit of Texas Pete on the line. Like we, we got to set something up here. We could get Texas Pete involved. I'll tell you what, that Texas Pete sauce is. Just phenomenal, man. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know about Cincinnati. Here, here's the thing with Cincinnati. Um, I don't think Notre Dame's that good. That's number one. I mean, for some reason, all of us thought Jack Cohn, who really was just a guy at Wisconsin. Okay, he was he just was. a guy. I mean, I mean, he, he, he played well in some games, but when the big games rolled around, he was not a guy. Okay, he was not a guy where you're like, okay, let's rely on Jack Cohn. And, and again, you want to talk about another game where we, you know, we kind of misinterpreted. The win against Florida State, we thought, oh, what a great win. Florida State is terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Maybe the worst team in the ACC. So, I think, you know, after three weeks, I think you can start to, like, recalibrate what you think about things. And Notre Dame, you know, I, I mean, I could see Cincinnati win that game easy. But I don't think that's the problem with Cincinnati. And this is what people always overlook with these group of five schools. It's not that it's not the idea of them beating the power five teams because they can do that. You get that one shot situation and you get those dudes on your team that all feel like they should be playing in the power five and they play over their heads or at their ceiling. Everybody on your team does. You can win those games. The problem is when you get into this sleepy road game at Tulsa, it's a conference opponent. They know your personnel. They know what you do every play. And you go in there and you think you're going to win a noon kick because it's just what it is. And guess what? You lose 23-20. That's the game that Cincy's got to worry about. That is mm. the game because it's not about not total specifically, but that type of game because you're not getting up to that game. You're not getting up and saying, look, we have to have this game to get to our play to get to the playoff. It's the conference games that always trip these guys up. If you remember Houston a couple of years ago or one a yep. couple, like four or five years ago when Tom Herman was there, same type deal. It's the conference games that trip you up. And I think that's, what's going to trip up Cincinnati. All right, and I think Cincinnati is going to the playoffs still. Not, I'm not recalibrating <laughs> that one. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, I guess we'll have to, we'll have to set that up. We got a couple. We'll, of we'll put to, some Texas Pete on it, okay? How about that? That's that's pretty much the way I finish every sentence. Just put some Texas Pete on it. That's that's the, yeah, the best yeah, yeah. way to go. <laughs> Matt, really, really appreciate the time, man. This has been great, great stuff. Looking forward to all that you got coming out, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk real soon. 
Okay, brother, appreciate it. I wanted to close with one quick thought for it might mean too much. And that was the Arch Manning treatment at Georgia. If you watched that game between South Carolina and Georgia on Saturday night, well, I don't know if you saw much of the game, but you sure saw a lot of Arch Manning. Man, they showed him a ton. And he's wearing the Georgia hat, and they're getting his reaction after every single big play that Georgia makes, and they keep showing Cooper. And, you know, I get it because Arch Manning at this stage of his career is already a household name. And we had Jeff Duncan of The Athletic come on and talk about his recruitment and why it did feel a little bit like the courting of Marcus Dupree. And there are certain things about this that I'm so excited to see moving forward. But if we're really at this point where we're going to show him constantly throughout the game and everything is about Arch Manning, goodness gracious, we're in for a long three to four years here as well because I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I got a little bit sick of this and I get it, Georgia, you want to show him the best possible atmosphere. I thought it was a little bit of a head scratcher to see Kirby Smart treat the quarterback situation the way that he did to have Stetson Bennett come into that game with JT Daniels when you have blue chip recruits on your bench. Who aren't necessarily getting those early reps and instead Stetson Bennett who was replacing the way that it was kind of framed afterwards you know Kirby said that he was coming in for JT Daniels who wasn't 100% healthy if he's able to hang in the pocket and make deep throws and you're willing to expose him in that sort of way I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that JT Daniels is perfectly fine and that you should probably be willing to give one of your other guys those looks and to bring in Stetson Bennett late into the game instead of a Carson Beck, instead of a Brock Vandegrift. Not the best look. Not the best look for your blue chip recruits or for Arch Manning, who's sitting there wondering when he's going to be able to play at Georgia when Kirby has consistently gone with Stetson Bennett in these spots and his loyalty to him is, is undeniable. But... I thought that was noteworthy, and if we're if we are meant to interpret everything through an Arch Manning lens, which it kind of feels like we're being forced to at this point, then that was something that if you're a Georgia fan, I'd be a little bit worried about that as well, and what type of message that sent to the uh, the, the the next great Manning, or at least that's what we're, we're we've been led to believe. I think he will be, by the way, for what it's worth. So not trying to hit on Arch Manning or anything, but Kirby being Kirby as always. All right, if you have not, leave us a five-star review. Go on iTunes, do it right now. Make our day, leave us a five-star review. We love getting those. And if you have not told anybody about Saturday Down South Podcast, now's a great time to do it. Hey, you like college football? You should go listen to Saturday Down South Podcast. You should all listen to, you should also listen to our two new podcasts, College Football Uncensored, Saturday Lives Forever. If you have not subscribed to our Saturday football newsletter, you should go do that right now. Saturday.football, be up to date. If you don't want to mess around with social media, just go do that. Just become a, a subscriber to the best college football newsletter that is in existence right now. Adam Spencer does such a great job with that. Dustin Judy as well. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.